Good morning again. If you slipped in uh, late, my name is Shane Hackle. I'm the RUF Campus Minister. I'll be bringing uh, the Word of God to you this morning. We're so thankful that you're here. There are sign-up pads on the ends of the rows. If you wouldn't mind, please uh, pass those down. Uh, sign up. It's a good way to let us know that you're here and let us know how we can pray for you. And it's a good way to remind yourself of your neighbor's name in case you've forgotten it and you don't want to go for that awkward moment of asking them for their name for the fourth or fifth time. So please pass that down. Uh, you can turn your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 1. We'll be there this morning. We have been in a sermon series over the Sermon on the Mount, and we are focusing on prayer, but I don't have a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't want to mess up Ryan's sermons on prayer. So, we are going to do James chapter 1, verse 1, and you can get a little taste of what we've been doing in RUF on Wednesday evenings. Uh, the title of our sermon series in RUF is Faith in Action. We believe that faith in Jesus Christ compels us and drives us to act in our lives every day. Uh, the great uh, Reformation phrase is, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith which remains alone. Our faith in Jesus Christ necessarily produces good works. It's ironic that Luther said that because Luther always also said that James is the epistle of straw. Luther was right about a lot of things, but he may have been wrong about the book of James. So... We've been meditating on it this semester and it has been a lot of fun, so I'm excited to share this with you this morning. Please stand for the extremely long and tedious reading of God's Word. You're supposed to laugh there. From James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Please be seated and pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness and graciousness to us. We thank you for bringing your word uh, very predictably, normally, and sometimes uh, by surprise, like this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to teach us what we have to learn from the book of James. We pray, Lord, that you would calm and quiet our souls. I pray that you would help us focus and be attentive to your word. I pray that you would give me your peace and your strength and your Holy Spirit as I preach. Um, out of weakness, and out of um, unpreparedness. Pray, Lord, that You would love us and be with us and give us Your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite Christian uh, historical figures is William Wilberforce, and I talk about him a lot, and I tell a lot of stories because I think he had an amazing life. And so there are lots of great lessons for us to learn. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Wilberforce is the story of his conversion. Wilberforce grew up in the church, he went to church as a young boy, but once he became successful and once he got engaged in like worldly matters, he left the church uh, in middle school and high school and in college. Uh, he was in, uh, in London. He was very successful. He's a very successful um, politician. And he was on the fast track to becoming the prime minister of Great Britain, becoming head of parliament. He began to become like a social elite and very wealthy he partied a lot, he did a lot of politics, and he just kind of left his faith behind. All until one eventful carriage ride. Remember about those carriage rides, I'll sneak up and get you. But he was going to take a carriage ride around Europe, and he invited one of his friends to come with him. What he didn't realize was his friend was a devout Christian. And so on a carriage ride, you didn't have iPads or iPhones or anything like that to distract you, so they actually talked about stuff, and they began talking about religion. And his friend began sharing his faith with him about Jesus Christ. He 
He began talking about the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection. He began to share with him how his faith impacted his daily life. And by the end of the carriage ride, Wilberforce had an identity crisis. He realized that all of his life that he had devoted to politics and wealth were meaningless. If Jesus Christ really did rise from the grave, if he really was the Son of God, if he really did pay for sins, then Wilberforce had to have faith in him. And that faith changed everything. So Wilberforce began to withdraw from all of his parties. He began to withdraw from his social life. He became kind of a recluse. And he began to try to think about what does it actually look like to live out the Christian life. And he began, uh, by word and prayer and by counsel, he decided to devote his life towards serving in in Parliament and trying to abolish the slave trade. I think Wilberforce's question what does it look like to live out the Christian life is a question that we all struggle with. How do I actually be a Christian in everyday life? If Jesus really did rise from the grave, if He really did pay for my sins, if the Bible is true, then how does that affect me on a daily basis? On a moment-by-moment basis? Um, for some of us, Jesus is... Uh, we struggle with this. right? This is really hard for us. For some of us, Jesus becomes kind of a tradition. It becomes something that we just do on Sundays, something that is sentimental and it's nice, but it really doesn't impact our lives Monday through Saturday. For some of us, Jesus is a license to sin. We know that Jesus forgives us for sins. We know that we're going to do bad things and we know that we can just go back to Him and get forgiveness whenever we mess up. For some of us, Jesus uh, becomes a life jacket. We, know, we think that this world is going down, that it's sinking, that, it's, that, that everything is going to go to hell in a handbasket, and we don't want to go down with it, so we throw on the great life jacket Jesus, and He saves us from the sinking ship. And some of us struggle because we think, frankly, that Jesus is kind of irrelevant. We've tried the Christian game, we've tried the Christian life, we've tried to, to be a good Christian and to follow all the rules, and it just hasn't worked out for us. So He feels kind of irrelevant. Into that experience, into that question, the book of James speaks. And what the book of James says is that faith in Jesus Christ changes everything. It impacts everything that we touch in our lives. That Jesus really does matter. That Jesus really does change everything you do here in worship and at work and with your family and in the classroom. And what I want you to see this morning is that if Jesus is true and if we believe in Him and we have, if we have faith in Him, then that's going to be changing everything about us. And what it's going to cause us to do is to serve. It's going to cause us to go out into the world and see every, everywhere we go as an opportunity to serve each other and to serve God. So we're going to look at sort of three things this morning. We're going to see that faith changes our heart, faith changes our title, And faith changes our job. First thing we see is that faith changes our heart. And we see this very simply by the fact that the book of James is written by James. Okay, The first word, James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. And what you need to know about James is he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah for, for a good portion of his life. Okay, If you look throughout the Gospels, we see little little snapshots of Jesus interacting with his family, and basically Jesus' family thought he was crazy. right? In John 7, uh, Jesus' family does not believe him, and they actually come up and they mock him. In, Matthew, in Mark 3, Jesus uh, 
thinks that he's crazy because he's hanging out with sinners and because he's making the religious people, the Pharisees, mad. In Matthew 12, Jesus is teaching and his family actually interrupts him. And then on the cross, we see that Mary, his mother, was the only one of his family members that was actually there to witness him crucified. James thought he was crazy. He thought, my half-brother is a lunatic. So what happened in James' life? What caused him to go from thinking Jesus is crazy to now calling Jesus his Lord and Savior and actually writing a book of the Bible about him? And we know that James eventually became a martyr for him. The difference is this, that James saw the resurrected Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that James, along with about 500 other people, actually saw the resurrected Jesus. They knew that Jesus had lived. They knew that He died. And then, after He rose from the grave, He actually visited James in the flesh. He actually saw the resurrected Jesus. The resurrection changed Him. Now, how did it change Him? We don't really know. They don't give us details. But we know in general how Jesus changes people. We know that when Jesus changes people, they see their sinfulness and they see Jesus' sinlessness. They see Jesus in all of His glory and they see themselves in all their sinfulness. So imagine like James being Jesus' brother kind of meeting Jesus and all of a sudden everything clicks and everything from Jesus' life actually makes sense. I mean, like think about it. They grew up together. They're playing together. Jesus is perfect. He gets mad, you know, like James is probably getting mad because Jesus is stealing his toys, but Jesus never gets mad and he always wants to give him his toys. And James is disobeying his parents, but Jesus never does. And James never wants to go work with his father, but Jesus wants to go work with his father and actually learn the trade. And then Jesus does this crazy thing like he goes in the wilderness for 40 days and doesn't eat anything. And then Jesus does all this teaching. Jesus lives his sin sinless life. He lives a perfect life. And imagine James kind of seeing Jesus resurrected and going, that's it. He really was the Messiah. He really was God. Everything makes sense. And at that point, James put his faith in Jesus Christ. He, he actually had what we call saving faith in Jesus. And that changed his heart and that changed his life. He had faith in Jesus. He believed in Him. What is, uh, what is saving faith? We talk about having faith in Jesus all the time. What does that actually mean? Uh, I love how the Shorter Catechism says it. The Shorter Catechism says saving faith is receiving Jesus and resting in Him. Receiving Jesus and resting in Him. And I experienced a great example of this on our winter conference ski trip that we had a few weeks ago. I made the big mistake of trying to learn how to snowboard the first day. All right? So I'd been skiing before, but I'd never been snowboarding. I'd always want to try it. So I decided I was going to snowboard. So I took a lesson. And if you take a snowboard lesson, what they do is they take you to the bunny slope, and this is what your day consists of. Trying to snowboard down the bunny slope, crashing all the way down, getting to the lift, riding the lift back up again, your instructor teaching you how to do a different turn, and then you trying to execute that turn down the bunny slope, crashing all the way down, and then riding lift back up again, and repeat for about six hours that day. And so, like, I'm trying to learn how to snowboard, I'm trying to do what the instructor said, I'm trying to do all my turns, do my heel side and my toe side and all that stuff, and I just keep falling over and over and over again. And every time I would fall, I would, like, crack my shoulder and twist my neck and pop my back, and I'm like, oh, Sherry's going to be so mad at me because I'm going to come home, and I'm going to be so sore, and I'm not going to be able to help with the kids. 
And I'm just getting beat up and bruised and tired. And every time I'm like going down the run, I couldn't wait to get to the bottom of the run and get to the lift. Because you, you, right, you, ski, you, you get to the bottom of the run, you come up, there's a little line, you kind of get to the edge on the line, and you just kind of sit there, and the lift kind of comes by and it sits underneath you, and then you just kind of do this on the lift. And every time I get to the bottom, I'd sit down and I'd go, that feeling is what it means to receive Jesus and rest in Him. It's to experience sin in your own life and sin in the world and to get to Jesus and go, thank you. I need Jesus. Now that's a game changer when you do that. The reason why a lot of us may or may not know how to live out the Christian life is we've never actually received Jesus and rested in Him. We treated Jesus like a tradition. We treated Jesus like a habit. We've treated church like something nice to do. But we've never actually received Him and rested in Him. And I talk to students on campus all the time that tell me, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I say, well, what does that mean? And they go, well, my mom read the Bible and my mom prayed with me. Or we went to church on Sundays. Or I try to do good things. And I have to explain to them, like, that's not actually what it means to be a Christian. That's a tradition. That's sentimentality. That's something good to do. That's not actually receiving Jesus and resting in Him. And that's not how we live out the Christian life. So some of us maybe need to examine ourselves and go, have I ever actually received Jesus and rested in Him? Have I ever actually said, Jesus, I can't do it? When you do that, that's going to change your heart. Paul tells us that that fills our heart with the Holy Spirit. He tells us that makes us a new creation. He tells us that makes us crucified with Christ and that we no longer live and we're something totally different. So faith in Jesus Christ changes your heart. The second thing it does is it changes your title. And we see this here again in in verse 1, very simply. James introduces himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a title. Now we use titles all the time, right? Mr. and Mrs., son or daughter, reverend or doctor. Those titles are important because they tell us something about that person. This title is important because it tells us something about James and it tells us something about what it means to be a Christian. The word servant here in the Greek is actually doulos. And it literally means slave or bondservant. So what James is literally saying is, James, a slave of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you become a Christian, one of the things that happens is your title changes. You actually become a slave or a servant of God. There's a reordering of the priorities of your life to where you are no longer the master. God is. Think about all the things that James could have put there, all the bad things that we could have put there. Right? Notice it doesn't say, it doesn't say James, a slave to self. James, a slave to the world. James, a slave to Satan. James, a slave to sin. Now it says James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we become a Christian, we're no longer slaves to ourselves. We're no longer slaves to the world or to Satan or to sin. We're slaves of God. Now why in the world would we want to be a slave to God? We'd want to do that because He's a good God and He's a good Father. 
And he's a good master. On campus, we often hand out flyers to tell people to come to RUF. And we, we usually hand out flyers on the same day, at the same time, at the same spot. And what has happened, like every week so far, is we'll be out there, and I'll be handing out flyers, and I will have this one student who will walk by, and he will say, be your own God. He's done it two or three different times. And the first time, I was kind of like persnickety, and I, and I just kind of off the cuff said, well, let me know how that works out for you. He just kept on walking. I can't imagine why. He didn't want to talk to me. This, <laughs> the second or third time he said that, I just kind of bit my tongue and just kind of stood there and was kind of like, kind of thought to myself, all right, buddy, let, let me know how that works out for you. The reason why we want to be a slave to God is because we are horrible masters. We are horrible gods. And if you have ever tried to actually do what that student said, you know that you're a horrible master. Like, have you ever thought, I am just going to do everything that my heart desires? I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to do whatever is right in my own eyes. Just imagine what would happen if you actually lived like that. Now imagine what would happen if everybody in this room lived like that as well. If we actually made ourselves God and put ourselves in His place and did whatever our hearts desired. The world would be chaotic. It would be a mess. None of us would be here, and the ones that would be here would be in their pajamas. Right? It would be terrible, because we are horrible masters. God is a good Father. He is a good Master. And it's a good thing to be a slave in His house. At least in this sense. There are other, there are other texts that talk about us going from uh, slavery to sonship. Uh, there are other texts that talk about us being saints. And those are all things. This is just one aspect of what it means to be a child of God. It means that we're His servant. And that's a good thing. I think part of the problem with living out the Christian life is we don't really know how to serve God. Like, we don't really know in a good way what it means for God to be the Master and for us to be His servants and for us to live that out in a good and healthy way. And what James does continually in the book of James is he points us to the Word of God. And he points us to the Law of God. James is interesting because he has all these terms for the Word of God uh, that normally we'd look at the law, we look at the word, and we wouldn't use these terms. But James set, calls the law the perfect law. He calls the law the law of liberty and the royal law. He says that the message of grace that we receive comes from the word of God and it's been implanted in our hearts. So if we want to learn how to live out the Christian life, if we want to learn how to be a servant of God, we've got to be immersed in his word. We've got to actually read it, take it in understand it, and apply it. That's what we do here in worship. That's what we do on our own when we read the Bible. That's what we do when we listen to sermons. We're trying to take the Word of God, work it deep into our hearts, and then work it out. And that actually changes how we live. And it changes how we approach everything. Um, James continually emphasizes hearing and doing, and he continually emphasizes faith that leads to good works. So what, is, what does it actually teach us? What does the Word of God teach us? It teaches us that our job is to serve. It's very simple. If we look at this title, if we look, look at what James has explained here, James, we see that, uh, that faith has changed James's heart. We see that faith has changed James's title to a servant of God. And that means then that his new job is to serve. And that means for us as Christians that when we have faith in Jesus Christ, 
that changes our job. And our job becomes to serve. To serve God and to serve others. You see, sin causes us to focus on ourselves. It causes us to look inward. It's a power or force that makes us selfish. Imagine us standing around kind of staring at ourselves all the time. What happens, whenever God comes in and He changes our hearts and He changes our minds, He fills us with the Holy Spirit and that enables us to actually look out at other people and look at their needs and their wants and their desires and to serve them. It's Being a servant is the natural overflow of what it means to be a Christian. It's the fruit of what it means to be a Christian. Okay, Oftentimes what we try to do is we want to tax service on and say, okay, this is another thing I have to do to be a Christian. I have to serve. And you, you can't just put fruit or seeds on a plant. That's not how it works. It has to be the natural growth pattern. Okay, I grew up on a farm, and I'll be honest with you, I wasn't a very good farmer. All right? I didn't pay a lot of attention. I just kind of did whatever my dad told me to do. But I learned something about being on a farm that I think is very important for spiritual growth. What I learned about being on a farm is this. You never put soybeans on the plant. You never put soybeans on a plant, right? What do you do? You till the soil. You put the seed in. The, the plant, you know, the, the sun comes down. The sun shines on it. The rain falls. The rain waters the soil. And this soybean plant grows up and it produces soybean seeds. That's how we produce service and good works in the Christian life. We don't try to take service and put it on the plant. What we do is we immerse ourselves in the Word of God We read the Word of God. We pray through the Word of God. And service naturally bubbles over and it naturally grows. It's the fruit of what it means to be a Christian. It's not just something we tack onto it. And the challenge of the Christian life is this, is to live live out that service every day. Oftentimes we talk to uh, students and they say they want to be challenged in their faith. They want to grow deeper in their faith. Uh, Katie and Greg and Sherry and myself we're talking about this the other night as we're just kinda, we just kind of meet and talk every now and then. And we were saying it's interesting, I was saying it's interesting, that we only words like, the only word we use for the Christian life is challenge, right? We always want to be challenged in our faith, not encouraged or comforted or any of these other things. So we're kind of talking about what it's like to be challenged. And Sherry goes, I think if you're not challenged by Christianity, you just don't know what it means to be a Christian. Like, living out the Christian life is challenging. I think what most of us think, as challenging in the Christian life is, I've got to go do a week-long mission trip. Or I've got to read the Bible in a year. Or I've got to go to a 24-hour prayer session. And that's what the challenge is in the Christian life. But I don't think that's what's challenging. I think the challenging thing is just living out a life of service day by day. It's looking at your spouse and going, how can I love my spouse and meet their needs? How can I serve them? Not manipulate them not get them to do what I want them to do? How can I just love my spouse and serve them? It's, it's children looking at their parents and going, okay, how can I love and serve my parents? How can I, instead of me just wondering, okay, how much money are they going to give me or are they going to drive me to the movies or do I have to clean my room? It's children going to their parents and actually saying, like, how can I help you? What, what would it look like for me to love you and serve you? Could I stay home? Once this weekend so that you could go out and watch a movie with dad instead of me, you taking me to the movies all the time? I don't know. I mean, children, just ask yourself, what would it look like for you to serve your parents? Or, or college students, what would it look like for you to serve your roommates? Right? you got the roommate. 
The roommate's messy. The roommate fills the dishes up, you know, makes dirty dishes all the time, leaves their trash everywhere. And all you want to do, you, you want to complain about the roommate. You get angry with the roommate. What would it look like for you to actually serve the roommate? What if you actually went over and, like, picked up their clothes and folded them for them or cleaned the dishes for them or took out the trash for them instead of complaining? I find that challenging. Maybe I'm just more sinful than everybody else, but I find little acts of service like that every day to be the most challenging. I also find them to be the most rewarding, though. When we, I think when we continue to live out the Christian life, we live out the life of service, we know it's a good thing, we know we should do it, we also know that it's a burden. We know that it's difficult. Um, one of the interesting things about James is that he is always giving us a command, he's telling us we should do something, and he's also showing our inability to do it. Right? So he does this a couple times in, in the book of James. He says he tells us to control our tongue, but then he says that we can't in chapter 3, verse 8. He tells us to avoid the pollution of the world, but then he tells us that because we envy and we quarrel, we actually prove our worldliness. And so there's this kind of always this tension in James between James giving us a command to do something and then James showing us that we can't do it. And I think we probably feel that tension in our life. Like, we're thinking right now, how can I serve people? How can I love them? What could I do for them? But then you know, once you get into your daily life, once we get out of here, we're going to slide back into only thinking about ourselves and only serving ourselves. Well, the good thing about the books of James is this, that the book of James is, is um, I want to say it, it is littered with grace. It has grace all the way through it. And this kind of surprises people about James because James gives so many commands. I don't know if I said this earlier, but there are 58 different commands in the book of James in only 108 verses. So basically, it's a two-to-one ratio, commands to verses. And so you read the book of James, you think, man, this is really legalistic. Like, he's just telling me to do a bunch of stuff. But every now and then, a little hint of grace pops up in the book of James. And one of the commentators I read said this. He said, the climax of James is chapter 4, verse 5. But God gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this commentator said, true believers order their lives around the Word of God and seek to carry it out. And when they fail, they plead for grace. True Christians, living by faith, seek to order their lives around the Word of God, loving and serving others. And when they fail, they come to God and they do this. I couldn't do it again. I need your grace. Not only do you receive Christ and rest in Him when you become a Christian, but you receive Him and you rest in Him day after day after day when you realize that you can't love and serve the way you should. You come to Him like that ski lift and you go, all right, I couldn't do it again. But you love me and you give me grace. And that's how we live out the Christian life. Continually coming back for more grace. Continually trying to love our neighbors and love others and love God, but then resting and receiving Jesus whenever we fail. I'm going to close with a story from the life of Mother Teresa that I think illustrates how we're to live out uh, this life of faith. Uh, the story says that, that uh, one day Mother Teresa was serving the poor in Calcutta. She was a nun. Her specialty was living in Calcutta, India and serving the poor. Um, the story says that one day she was there, she was serving, 
And this young man came to her and said, Mother Teresa, I don't know how I can do it. And she said, what? Do what, child? And he said, I don't know how I can serve the poor. I don't know how I can meet all their needs. I don't know how I can help these lepers. I just, I don't know what to do. And she said, child, what is your job? And he said, my job is to to take care of the lepers. And she said, no, 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 no. Your job is to be loved by God and to love others with the overflow out of that love. I think that captures what James is trying to say here in this first verse and the entire book. Our job is to be loved by God and to love and serve others with the overflow out of that love. So let's pray that God will give us a spirit to do that.